Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. It's like almost an anthem around our house. I, in terms of like a song that kind of gets everybody. And when I say everybody, I mean myself, my significant other, and the dog. Gets everybody kind of pulling in the same direction. That particular song by Fountains of Wayne. And I think written specifically by the late and lamented uh, Adam Schlesinger, one of the earliest victims of COVID. Um, but it really sort of sums up something. I mean, we don't sing it because we're so sick of where we live. No, we don't. That's not why we sing it. Um, all right. So and the song is called New Routine, by the way. Today is um, it's going to be Ask Her or Tell Me Anything, uh, which means that no guests, no planned topics. I do have with me any number of Mr. Carp envelopes. Once again, Mr. Carp envelopes are sent to me, sealed by Mr. Carp. They contain clippings. I'm like from newspapers, not like his toenails or something. Uh, they contain clippings which Mr. Carp has in his wisdom decided are important, I guess. I don't know. He doesn't really ever explain. <clears throat> but they're here. I don't know what's in them. The only way that we can do one of those is if you call up and specifically ask that I open on the air a Mr. Carp envelope, at which point I would be obliged to discuss its contents. And you would be obliged as the caller to at least kind of go, uh-huh, like that. like you, Or you could talk more, obviously. Uh, but the rest of the time, it will just be things that you decide are interesting. And one thing that we have learned, painful, not painfully, delightfully, is that you do not, you're not like other, talk, I used to host a talk show on commercial radio, and I could tell you on any given day what a certain percentage of the audience was going to want to talk about. That is not the case here. We have two calls already. Neither of them are about things that are in the news or anything like that. And that's Fine. So once again, the number is 888-720-WNPR, 
888-900-9677. In fact, we prefer that things be somewhat obscure and difficult to plan for. Um, not only on this particular type of episode, but in general. Oh, before I go to Heather and Tom, I got to tell you two other things because uh, there are shows that we're working on. We have a show coming up on Thursday about COVID. We're hoping in the first segment to have the kind of guest on who could answer a lot of questions that you might have uh, about about the, the the state of COVID these days. I will say that I've sort of become, in my own circle kind of a COVID rabbi. I mean, people call me up with really complicated questions. You know, if a man has two tracts of land and three daughters and one of them tested positive on a rapid antigen test, you know, 10 days ago, et cetera. Uh, and I, I dispense wisdom, but we would ideally have someone much more qualified. So think about that. And if you don't want to, well, actually what you should do is email me, Colin at ctpublic.org. Colin, just my name, at ctpublic.org. Uh, with your question. Uh, and then the other thing is, and I think we the same the same plan obtains here, Betsy Kaplan, senior producer emeritus Betsy Kaplan, is working on a mountain lion show right now, particularly mountain lions in Connecticut, which either are here or are not. So if you have a mountain lion story, you could do that too. So you could email me at colin at ctpublic.org. It's the same email. I don't have a special email for mountain lions. Um, and you can... We'd also be interested to know like, what you were drinking at the time, what you drank before and after seeing a mountain lion. All right, here we go. We're going to begin with Heather, as promised. Heather's in Southington. Let's find out what she is interested in today. Heather, what are you interested in today? Hi, I'm the daughter of a retired English teacher who went to Yale. So you would get along great with my dad. I probably would. <laughs> I have three minor complaints. I know there are pressing issues in the world. But I have a punctuation, a grammar, and a pronunciation. So first of all, I think this might have been covered on your show on punctuation, but it drives me nuts how so many people are using an apostrophe for plurals. Right. And it's everywhere. And I see it even uh, on Facebook, uh, people from the UK, Australia. So it's not just the U.S. No, I think the Australians may have started it, too. You know, yeah. I with all their apostrophes and stuff like that. Um, no, it is true. So this is the gratuitous apostrophe. So you're driving by uh, a, a little sort of farm-like area, and there's a hand-lettered sign that says Nightcrawlers, apostrophe S. Apostrophe S, right. exactly. It drives right. me nuts. So, and, and I see it even like in, you know, formal emails, advertisements. Everywhere. It drives right. me nuts. Right. No, I understand. Okay. okay. That's number one. I, 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 I don't know what better. to do about it. I don't have any bomb for your soul, but <laughs> um, but I That's would agree. Apostrophe. That it's a problem. Yeah. Okay. The second one is a pronunciation. I don't understand why even educated adults say height. It's height. You uh, know, nobody says, what's your weight? Yeah. But they'll say, what's the height of the building? Oh, the height. It's the height? Yeah. Maybe I, they have a lift. Maybe uh, they have a speech impediment. <laughs> it could be, but it's width, length, height, weight. But don't you think but, width no. is the thing that has confused people about height? Maybe. Possibly. Like maybe they, I, maybe I, we should just keep it standard. It should be width. Width and height. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe. Okay, so I feel better. And then my last one is uh, grammar. Um I don't think people realize they say this, but people with two children will say my oldest and my youngest. Mm-hmm. Now, 
I have two children. I have an older son and a younger son. You know, I wouldn't say one son's tallest than the other. Right. No, he's taller. So you have to have at least three kids to have an oldest and a youngest. And I don't know why, but this drives me nuts. Well, I, People uh, with two kids say it all the time. My oldest did this, my youngest. No, older, younger. I think it's the most annoyingest thing in the world. Uh, no, I, I, th- I actually, so that's sort of, I think, called the superlative. And so you don't need a superlative if there are only two choices. You're absolutely correct right. about that. Um, right. Like, I, I like this one better right. of the two. I like this one better, not which one do you like best. Right. You have to have I, at least three things. Right. Um, I think it might be the difficulty. People have a hard time remembering what all the rules are. Some people do anyway. <laughs> so I think they sort of think, well, I know I know this is right some of the time, so I'll just say it that way. But um, okay. but you are yeah. correct. You are correct. I think the problem – you know what the problem is? Hmm. You're bothered by this. They're not bothered by this. They're quite happy saying – the height of my oldest son, uh, you know. I mean, they, they don't care. They're happy as yeah. clams. They're happy as yeah. clams. And you are upset, So, which is unfair, right? Because you are correct and they are incorrect, but they are also right. untroubled. I guess I just love the English language, so I get upset when people abuse it. I know, I'm the unofficial English police, but yeah. I guess I, I have my father's blood. I think, like, deep cleansing breath is what you yeah. have to do. Deep, deep, yeah. or or deep cleansing breath. Maybe we shouldn't say breath anymore. Uh, all right. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks for calling, Heather. Uh, and yes, try to let it bother you too much because that's the problem, right? We have you take one problem and you make it into two. One problem is people are speaking incorrectly. The other problem is you're upset. Um, you can only control one of those two problems, and that's you're the the you being upset part of it. So do what you can because there's no you know life is too short. Uh, All right, here is Tom in Milford, who does not have a grammar question or observation or three. Go (laughs) ahead, Tom. No, I don't have a grammar. I do not have a grammar question. I have an an audio topic. I know you're a fan of music. I am, too. I have a record collection. I play vinyl records at home. I also have tons of CDs. I have tons of digital MP3s. I listen to them all. I like them all. Are you familiar with a company by the name of Mobile Fidelity Sound Labs? Um, no. Okay. They've been around for decades, and their stock in trade is that uh, they cut vinyl records from master tapes that are played at half speed, and the, the, the vinyl is cut at half speed, and this supposedly results in a superior audio experience in terms of vinyl, a superior quality. It came out recently that for a few years now, Mobile Fidelity has been cutting their records from digital copies of masters, not masters. And it created a bit of a hue and cry in the high-end you know, uh, uh, niche vinyl market that this company was saying they, they cut from analog masters and they're not doing it. It turns out there's a reason for it. It turns out that a number of these companies, these record and, and, and publishing and record companies that have the master tapes, they're not letting them out of their possession anymore. Hmm. Mobile Fidelity, they won't send the master tape to Mobile Fidelity so they can put it on their machines and do the half-speed mastering process they've done. Instead, what Mobile Fidelity actually has to do now is bring expensive equipment on-site to where the masters are kept. 
And they have found that if they just try to make a, 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 a an analog tape copy of the master, mm-hmm. the quality is actually lost. You lose, you get, you introduce hiss into the sound. So they use a very high end digital sampling technology uh, setup to make copies of these vinyl masters that they can't, uh, the, these uh, analog master tapes that they can't get their hands on. Well, and first of all, I smell, I, I smell a Taylor Swift song coming. Because like wasn't that wasn't wasn't that her big issue? I guarantee you, I am not going to break into a Taylor Swift spawn. No, but right wasn't now. that like her big issue? They wouldn't they wouldn't give her a masters or something. I can't remember. Well, that was that was a contractual thing. Yeah, that, that was a case of of ownership. Who owns the rec- the stuff? In this case, it's the fact that the people who own the stuff won't let it out to a company that presses records in really high quality. Right. So. Well, maybe maybe that's a good precaution, though. I mean, who knows? You know, I mean, if they have the master, how they maybe they shouldn't be just throwing it out there for anybody. I mean, if there's, well, I, there's I, is there I only one that, master? But, but should mobile fidelity should mobile fidelity be taking a reputational hit because of that? That's my question. Because frankly, I think digital has gotten so good these days mm-hmm. that unless you have ridiculously sensitive ears, you're not going to be able to tell it. Oh, well, I'm totally so with you on that. that. I'm totally with you on that. I mean, I think actually also our ability to hear that kind of stuff is kind of degrading because people just, you know, they, I, Neil Young can still tell the difference or something, but I'm not sure anybody else can. I, I think we sort of, in a way, are... Oral a u r a l expectations have just kind of lowered, uh, <laughs> and so I certainly can't. I listen. I, I I don't know if I don't if I'm not Bluetoothed to something. I li- I I have been known to just listen to music like this coming out of my phone, and I'm not deeply unhappy about that. But I'm also not. I'm just part, not part of the audiophile class. That's the truth. All right, so um, I'm just going to – we're having a little bit of a computer problem. It's just a small computer problem. And when I say small computer problem, I mean I'm not the person who has to deal with it. That's what I mean by small. Um, But there is a small computer problem, and we'll see whether it affects our situation or not. Uh, Here is Jamie in Hamden. Hi, Jamie. Hey, Colin. Um, Thanks for doing this. I wanted to call in and just give a shout-out to people who – are either caregivers or loved ones of people living with dementia or Alzheimer's disease and related illnesses. And I want to say that that it is an illness that is still way too much in the shadows in our community, in our country, perhaps globally. And I want to encourage the caregivers and the loved ones to seek out support groups to realize that they are not alone and to be with like-minded people. Um, I started picking up some hours uh, working in an assisted living and dementia uh, facility in programming, and it's wonderful to see the socialization, the camaraderie, the love between staff and residents, people living with the illness in all stages of progression. And it's really important to keep destigmatizing Alzheimer's-related forms of dementia, and I just hope people will get help and and keep knowing that we're not alone and that illness is not necessarily, quote unquote, the worst thing that could ever happen. There is life during for the caregivers and the people living with it. And, and I hope we can all continue to do some good helping each other. I think that's all. First of all, I should say my mother uh, had Alzheimer's disease uh, and it ultimately 
was sort of part of a cascade of things that that took her life. Um, so I, I know I know whereof you speak, um, and it's exhausting. And it's um, one thing, and I think you're right too that it's like the minute we feel that there's some sort of breaking point, and then we go, well, goodbye, you're gone. You know, and it's not exactly true. My mother was in a facility specifically for for people with Alzheimer's and and related dementias. And one one thing that I noticed, I don't know if you had this experience, because I would talk to some of the other people, too. Uh, I would talk to my mother, and sometimes everything she said made perfect sense or would have made perfect sense if we were on Cape Cod at the moment. Uh, I mean, you know, it was like everything else sort of totally like like how long did it take to get you there? Really? Only three hours? It usually takes longer. It's stuff like that. So, um, And the other thing that I I noticed was people who often seemed – profoundly impaired, if I asked them a question about their past, what town did you grow yes. up in? You know, they would start describing their neighborhood in Shelton, you know, in 1947 or something in, in exquisite detail. Uh, it was just nobody ever asked them about that. People asked them about things they didn't know the answer to. So, yeah, I, I do Good think you can, you can find joy uh, and you can you can connect you just can't insist on connecting the old way. I think there's also a real temptation once you realize you're dealing with somebody who's demented, particularly if that person had been has been your parent, to sort of get kind of get mad at them and also like I don't know. It's sort of like the tables are turned. You know, there was a long period of our childhood where they decided what reality was, and now they don't know what reality is. And then you sort of go, well, you're certainly wrong about that. There are no. And that's why go ahead. Shouting out for support groups. So people can get some perspective and help. And support groups are also often uh, lively and and wonderful places, but they can also be really safe and tearful places. But there's education, there's perspective, and most of all, there's life. And and that's, that's so important to know that life continues and joy is there to be found. That's a wonderful note to end on. We're going to end there. I'm going to take a break. It's a little bit earlier than when I usually take a break, but we are having a computer problem. I don't really know what the computer problem is, but it seems to me that taking a break would be a good thing to do while we figure out what we're going to do about all this. So, so unusual to have a computer problem. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. 
Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. Loneliness can be a significant health risk to people of all ages. Dr. Laura Saunders, a psychologist from Hartford HealthCare's Institute of Living, talks about social isolation and why we need to connect in person. Loneliness actually is a pretty significant health risk for people that struggle with social isolation. It affects their blood pressure, it affects their immune system, it affects your willingness to get up and get out and can cause some not just emotional issues, but health problems as well. You're not alone. Dr. Saunders explains how important it is for us to look to others and get out of our comfort zone. I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. So, um, we still have, if you work in radio, let me explain what's happening right now. The computer that runs assisted assistant producer doesn't work in the room where Jonathan McPants, who has to screen the calls, is sitting. But somehow or other, we can put the calls on Slack. So, it's complicated. Never mind. It's not an interesting problem. It's just a big problem. All right. So, using this sort of jury-rigged system, I do know, I think that the caller on, on line five, which I'm about to go to, is named, we're going to say Robert, uh, and that he wants to talk about Neanderthals. But that could be wrong. Hi, Robert. Yes, hello, Colin. And hello? Yes, hello. I'm, I'm here. I'm, I'm all ears. Okay, I'm going to take very little time. I loved your show on Neanderthals. Mm-hmm. Uh, 23andMe says I've got some Neanderthal also. But one thing that wasn't mentioned that I think is very key is when Homo sapiens moved out of Africa into the Middle East, and by the time they started going up to Northern Europe, well, it wasn't Europe then, but that area where the Neanderthals were, they had already bonded with dogs. They had dogs which have 20% more, I mean, they have, you know, dogs can smell 20 times better than humans. They, they have scent glands that are very, very careful. So when they interface with the Neanderthals, they could go to bed at night and not worry because the dogs were like 
keeping track of what's going on. And the Neanderthals would, you know, they didn't know what was going on. So I think that has a lot to do with why Homo sapiens overdid the Neanderthals. Well, first of all, one thing that we know is that occasionally they went to bed with Neanderthals, which is how yes. you got Neanderthal DNA, and I got Neanderthal DNA. But that is interesting about the dogs. I hadn't heard the thing about the dogs, uh, and and perhaps, you know, and I, I will when I get home, I will discuss this with my dog, Declan the dog. Um, but um, but as long as you're bringing this up, I'm going to mention another thing, which is I was listening to this really interesting program a BBC program about Homo erectus. No jokes, no laughs. Um, and like they're like the most underrated hominid. hominid. There's no question, top five underrated hominids. <laughs> or let's make it a David Letterman top 10 list. The number one underrated hominid is totally Homo erectus. Homo erectus was large and in charge for two million years, give or take. I don't know how good the record keeping was, but Homo erectus was in charge for two million years. Uh, and as a result, I mean, and we're like an eye blink compared to that. We're like nothing. We just kind of just rolled off the assembly line. So, and, and okay, here's the, here's the other part of it. I think I understood this correctly, that one of the reasons that, one of the things that helped Homo erectus was the loss of body hair, which allowed Sweating. Sweating was like really important, I guess, in terms of like chasing down prey that could run faster than you, you could over short periods of time. But you could just sort of Alberto Salazar the whole thing and, you know, hang in there longer. So um, so anyway, I, I, I feel like we might have to do we – do, we've done two Neanderthal shows because I am part Neanderthal and I have Neanderthal Pride. I go to Neanderthal Pride Week uh, pretty much every year. It's in Ohio this year. Uh, but um, Homo erectus, I feel like they are, you know, they don't get their due is all I'm saying. And, and they did a lot, too. I'm not entirely. I think they had fairly complex tools, for example. Um, all right. So um, where was I? So like these phones, they all work right now? Do they are they? Is this something I can have confidence in? I don't really care. What am I even asking for? Let's um, <laughs> let's let's talk to Jen in Scotland. I'm assuming Scotland, Connecticut. Uh, Correct. Yes. All right. So uh, tell us your story. Um, I was I was fairly early in the morning, and I was riding my electric bike, and it was very quiet out. And then I was right behind a mountain lion that was very casually just walking down the middle of a road of the back road and I knew that it was quite large and it was just calmly walking in the middle of the road just nice nice morning it wasn't actually it wasn't it, it wasn't humming or anything like that though that's <laughs> no, you're imputing the lumpty dumpty dum part okay <laughs> that, that was me um and I I didn't want to come up fast behind this big cat so I I you know rang my bell and made some noise and the cat turned around and looked at me and then hightailed it off into the bushes. So there there definitely are big cats in Connecticut. All right. First of all, I'm not sure that was the best strategy. When we we're gonna do a show next week, Betsy Kaplan is producing <laughs> it, and I will ask. But I feel like you're just saying you're ringing the bell, you're just saying, Hi, I'm a good humor. I'm a toasted I, almond. Yeah, I rang the bell so that it would run away because I didn't want to come up behind it really fast. No, that 
I would have just maybe stopped <laughs> and let the mountain lion continue on its way. Well, I wanted to see how close I could get to it. That's it was, not a it good was, experiment. It was, it was beautiful. <laughs> That's not a good Dude. experiment. How close can I get to the mountain lion while ringing my bicycle bell? Well, that was before I started ringing the bell. All right. Well, I would just say to the listeners, you know, just because this worked out for Jen, I wouldn't do that. <laughs> <laughs> I would make it, it. I would make it difficult it, for the the casual mountain lion to notice me. But all of this will get explored uh, in uh, in next week's show. I have total faith uh, in Betsy Kaplan to figure figure this whole thing out. Uh, all right. So, oh, these are all such interesting calls. Well, first of all, I think Joan has been waiting quite a while. I'm not sure that I will have much to add to this conversation. But here's Joan in Washington. Hi, Joan. Hi. How are you, Colin? Just fine. Colin, I, I think anybody who is not uh, brain dead knows that the last two weeks have been extraordinary and possibly historic. But as heavily laden as all the news reporters and journalists and all the people who give us the news are, I have not heard not a word, not a whisper of the loss of one of our great American historians. David McCulloch died, um, I think, 12, 13 days ago. He was 89 years old. His wife preceded him in death by two months. Something quite poetic about that, Mm -hmm. because they worked together very closely on his research. She read all of the last drafts of his books. But he was a great teacher. He was someone who made history come alive, made it relevant, made it vital, got your juices going. He was a beautiful man. And in the midst of all of this, we have Governor DeSantis saying that the reason there's a teacher shortage in Florida is that the standards are too high. Mm. So your first guest uh, this morning, or sorry, this afternoon, is one of the people... Uh, a kind of spirit friend of mine, because I cannot abide the the disrespect to our language. I actually keep a jot a little note paper in my kitchen when I'm even MSNBC uh, or CNN, and I write down all the grammatical errors because mm. they make me crazy. But it's a lo- it's just a losing battle. Uh, but not to note. Even for just a note, the passage of this man, who I think stimulated and... Uh, Whoop, sorry, I think, I think I lost you. That was my fault, yes. Yeah, I mean, somebody who was out there and who loved what he did and, and helped you love it too. I think, in general, historians don't probably get, aren't celebrated enough. They sort of fall between the cracks a little bit. But yeah, McCullough was in a special category and certainly somebody because of the John Adams thing that, that yeah. turned into an HBO thing and, and because of all the narration he, he did, he was a narrator on exactly. Burns' Civil War and stuff like that. He kind of crossed over. Yep. I will tell you that I saved, I think I have it, no longer have it, for a long time, like in the 1980s, there was some sort of Woods Hole lecture series over the course of the winter 
for the people who were there at Woods Hole during the winter at this beautiful conference center they have. And yeah. I, I can't remember who, there were like four different speakers, you know, each one on a different Friday night or something. Uh, and I was one of them, and David McCullough was one of the other ones. So I saved it for a long time just so I could, you know, Remind myself that I was part of a lecture series How with David great. with David McCullough. I, yeah, I don't. Th- I doesn't mean we were in anything like the same category or level, but it was sort of tickled. The idea kind of tickled me. All right, so we're going to go back to the top of the. The computer's now working. It's very exciting. Everything that is supposed to work is working. I shouldn't say that, uh, but here we go. Here's Jill in Colchester. Hi, Jill. You're on the air. Hey, Colin. First of all, thanks for identifying new routine before. Okay. I hate it when I listen to your show and I can't hear I don't know if Pong, and I get to uh, remember it, so I like that. Okay. Okay. Um, second of all, um, I called for two reasons. One was to uh, complain about when people say, I, I am a retired PA and I work in a sandwich shop now and a, and a butchery, a butcher shop, and uh, people come in and say, I think I'll do two pounds of ground beef. Like, what are you going to do with that's just, that's not right. I'm doing two pounds of ground beef. Sort of I, sexual in a way, right? Well, well, now that's where your mind is going right now. I think more of an indictment of you, Jill. But I I feel like I might have said something like that. I, this seems like the kind of sloppy idiom that I, I think that they're well, nervous. I think they're nervous, and I think. Yeah, I, I, you know, to your point, if they say I want two pounds uh, of ground beef, I don't know. I, I don't know why they feel like they can't say that. But the idea that they're going to do it means that it's sort of existing on some other frontier that is s- divorced, yeah. actually, from their desires. So I don't know. Well, what I'm really calling about is the state of I, I, I worked as a physician assistant for for 40 years, and I had to get out because I could not stand what was happening in medicine because of the administrators. And every time the media talks about why are all these people leaving medicine and nursing, it's not, you're talking to the wrong people. You're talking to the evildoers. Hmm. They're the ones who come in in the middle of the night and say, we have a new program. And uh, they give it a cute little acronym, which, you know, which really is going to mean we're going to screw you all over. And you guys don't talk to the right people. People are leaving. I was one of them because I couldn't stand the businessification of is that a, is that a word? Businessification. I'll, 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 I'll do I'll do three pounds of businessification. Sure, why not? Yeah, <laughs> and then have a good one. Right. <laughs> <laughs> All right. No, I. You know, you're you're absolutely right. I mean, medicine, the commercial practice of medicine, and also the the mergers, the ways in which hospitals that were sort of reliably, you know, part of a community and maybe founded by an order of nuns with the idea of providing a community service or something, they're now owned by, you know, corporations based on in on Mars or something. It just doesn't, or or owned by actual Martians, and and increasingly the standard of care does get subjugated, I think, which is not to say that there aren't great people working and acting in there, nurses, physicians, PAs, um, and certainly given everything we've just been through starting in March of 2020, they are incredibly heroic. 
But sitting along next to that are a lot of really, really bad decisions, which have been exacerbated by things that by what was not a bad decision. I mean, COVID ultimately took that system, which had been probably reduced down to its bare bones in the interest of conserving money and maximizing profits, and then subjected it to a flamethrower, basically, where people who you know weren't planning to retire or move to a less stressful job did. So, yeah, I mean, our, our healthcare crisis is worse than it was 10 years ago, and it'll probably be worse 10 years from now than it is now. All right. So uh, we're going to go, uh, we're going to continue on the journey that we're on right now. I'm not going to give out the phone number because we do really have a lot of calls. Here's JJ in Hartford. Hi, JJ. Good afternoon, sir. Well, thank you. An old, <laughs> an old complaint, but I'm going to complain because there doesn't seem to be any end to it. And as a uh, as a journalist, you can appreciate it. It probably falls on the shoulders of editors. And that is the following terms and words should be retired, Colin, yesterday, starting with iconic. Really? Let's make me look <laughs> a lot smarter than I am and just plug in the word iconic when I'm starting to write my new story. Iconic, existential. I've seen a lot of philosophy, and I know for a fact when it's used in most stories, they don't have a clue what existentialism is. Organic, tailwinds, headwinds, unpack, pivot, nauseating the number of times these terms and words are used. Is nauseating one of the words, or is it how you feel about those words being used? <laughs> Look, thank you for letting me vent. Yeah. I use you as my therapist. Right. Um, if I can pivot, I, I, if I can pivot, <laughs> if I pivot, Colin, to political terms, Yep. I've had the privilege of, of, of actually living in, in, in countries where these terms mean something, including the old Soviet Union, and I just returned from Budapest. The following terms thrown around that have no meaning, radical, communist, nihilist, the left. I mean, these are terms that the, both parties throw at each other, and there is absolutely no meaning. I've lived in countries where there's true communists. I've lived in countries where there's true radicals. Our, our U.S. Our U.S. Um, living now, as bad as it is, comes nowhere near what I just uh, stated. I mean, people on the left—they're—they're they're not left. People radical—they're not radical. Well, let me just say. Well, let me say one thing about all that. Lazy terms that people throw out. Yeah, the the class that I that I teach um, at Yale this year, I said to the class, "I'm sure you've all read." Orwell's Politics in the English Language, but we, we need to read it again. Well, it turns out a lot of them had never read it. But, um, you know, reading, there are parts of Orwell's essay that really could have been written within the past year. I mean, they are so stunningly connected to exactly what J.J. is talking about, um, the way in which meaning becomes severed from a word. Uh, and 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 the word becomes more a tool of convenience, often for people looking to trying to conceal something or to to remediate. You know, remediate isn't even now. I'm becoming sensitive about the words I'm using. Uh, but but people. I mean, he, basically, Orwell says when these kinds of words are used, and he gives a whole list of them, and some of them were ones that JJ just used. It's almost guaranteed that some kind of abomination is being covered up. Uh, so that was going on a long, long time ago. It's still going on now. I just read, I think it was in The Atlantic, I saw a piece where they somebody was saying that the word toxic is now uh, kind of entering that category of a word that's losing its shape and meaning.
meaning because it's just used so profligately. Profligately. There we go. All right. So we're going to take a break. Uh, We're going to come back. We have one final exciting segment here. I guess I could give out the number. We have a lot of calls, but 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR. But please don't fly as you seem inclined to do Cause I'd rather die than say goodbye to you I'm so repentant for that Van Gogh theft Was nothing to my crime, one solid left Should make my eye teeth jive I must confess, it got me good this time We're back. Uh, anything that doesn't get on the air today, you can always email me about it, colin at ctpublic.org. I think colin at wnpr.org also still works. Uh, and uh, thanks to Kat Pastor. She is our technical producer today. And special thanks to Jonathan McPants, who has been there in there dealing with, it's like one of those old Star Trek episodes where like a whole bunch of systems go down and Scotty can't fix something and Spock is just, you know, emotionally checked out and McCoy is panicking and somehow or other, I don't know exactly who that makes him, but he managed to, you know, pull things together and things are working better. And even when they weren't working great, he had, you know, kind of made a Band-Aid solution. So uh, he is today's hero. Uh, we are going to go back to the calls here. Ah, I'll just go up to the top of the screen. I don't even know what this call is about. That's how much I'm – How? oh, now I see. Uh, here's Ann from Ellington. Hi, Ann. Hi, Colin. What's on your mind? I, yes. Uh, can you hear me? Because I'm talking through my car phone. Yes. <laughs> my phone. Okay. I am so excited. I was trying to reach my son-in-law because uh, he and my daughter live in Chicago, and they're flying back there today. But his research for his Ph.D. is how under, people understand idioms. Hmm. And so um, when I talked to whoever answered the phone, they said that you might want to have him as a guest. He's written, like, his paper is, like, 45 pages. So he's had undergrads work with him to collect data on how people understand phrases. So, I mean, this, this show is fascinating for me. I called and left him a message. I mean, they're literally flying back to Chicago this afternoon. So, liter- so this- literally it would be another idiom worth talking about right away, but um, can, can, can you... Th- big wings. Yeah, they're not, they're not figuratively flying back. So, um, but, I mean, are there any idioms that you can think of that he, that he, that you have conversed with him about? Do you have any, like, can you sum into mind, this is maybe putting you on the spot, can you sum into mind, like, well, a sample idiom? Yeah, not right off the top. I'm, I'm thinking of his 45-page paper and, right. you know, the amount of time that went into that. He also has gotten a master's in statistics at the same time. Mm-hmm. But this he's going to be, like, so excited about this show. And All like right, I well, said, you can shoot me an email at that same email address I keep giving out, colin at wnpr.org. Uh, and, I mean, we love idioms here. We we love We love ourselves some idioms. All right, I'm going to go, well, I'll just go down the line here. I think that's the best thing to do, um, except there There we go. Uh, I'm going to go to Adrienne in West Hartford. Hi, you're on the air. Uh, thanks, Colin. Um, I'd like to suggest that newscasters start referring to Republican politicians 
as distinct from the rank and file who might be forgiven for actually believing the big lie, but referring to uh, Republican politicians as purporting to believe that the election was stolen. Um, Adam Schiff was just on uh, Fresh Air just, just before the show with Terry Gross, and she asked him, had he ever had a, a one-on-one conversation seeking to persuade one of his Republican colleagues that the election wasn't stolen? He said, no, it's not. It's totally unnecessary. They all know mm. it's a lie, and they all know that Trump is created, created the lie. They just don't want to be uh, publicly admitting it. But I think if, if we, we probably couldn't get you know, Fox News to do this, but if public television, public radio, and all the network uh, broadcasters started talking about these Republican politicians as purporting to believe that the election was stolen, it would create some unease in the, um, the rank and file people who do believe. Okay, that. Not, now not, not to undermine your claim. But I have to say that people who are comfortable with the brazen level of distortion and untruth that we're seeing today in our political system, whether they're talking about the the election, the election results, where we've already instituted the big lie. Big lie is now, you know, kind of stylistically canonical for a lot of major news organizations and the and baseless, uh, baseless claims. I mean, we, we did that, too. The idea that we will bring them to heel or certainly get them to feel, you know, our hot breath on their the back of their necks by saying purport. <laughs> I just don't I don't know. I don't think they really care whether we say purport or not. They have no interest in whether this stuff is true or not. They're politically postural. I mean, look what they just did with Mar-a-Lago. You know, that we would think that a bunch of, you know, SWAT armed, uh, you know, special tactics people with balaclavas went in there with a battering ram and knocked down the door and, you know, kicked all the Trumps in the in the stomach. And, you know, I mean, you know, they get served with a search warrant and, and there's this outrage and def- the, the, they've weaponized the FBI. They're going to weaponize the IRS. Um, so I don't think I don't think the word purport is going to stop them in their tracks or even give them a moment's discomfort. I would love to live in a world where it really bothered them if you said purport, you know, but I, I, I or it was like the knights who say knee, you know, oh, he said purport. Oh, no. But I don't I don't think that's the world we're in. Unfortunately. All right. Here's John in Middletown. And we also have Mike in Woodbury. We're going to probably run out of time pretty fast here. But, John, you have the floor. Uh, hi, Colin. Uh, I was wondering if you might give some thought to um, a monthly um, gathering of um, yeah, maybe uh, half a dozen um, uh, young, young men and women, um, high school and college. Uh, and uh, they would um, uh, talk about their roles uh, in school or projects. Uh, addressing climate change, um, and 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 how they, um, and why it's so important for them as far as uh, um, addressing climate change. I think it's uh, a so I think just, it's a terrific idea. I think it's a great idea, but not probably an idea for our show. I mean, our show. If you listen to it on with some regularity, we're you know I don't know we're we are ourselves, and I mean I think another broadcaster could do a really great job with that show. Um, it's just not exactly doesn't really fit what we're trying to do. I mean, we can never explain to anybody what it is we're trying to do, but we all we can we can explain why things aren't 
what we're trying to do. I, I don't think that's really us. Uh, and one thing we try to do with this show is figure out what is, you know, what's our kind of thing and what's what's a different kind of thing. And it would take too long, much longer than we have right now for me to explain that in greater detail. Here is Mike in Woodbury. Hi, Mike. Hi, Colin. How are you? Well, this is actually a good a good segue from the last call mm-hmm. because uh, Paul Krugman has an op-ed in today's New York Times uh, purporting to purporting here we go uh, to unpack why Republicans are so adamantly against environmentalism and global warming. I mean, Nixon, you know, he started the EPA. Uh, John McCain, want, you know, was for uh, cap and trade. But but over the years, over the last like twenty years, uh, it, it's become more than, than about economics. It's like it's going to cost you know cost the economy money. It's become a cultural thing. It's it's that um, I mean even when you know coal is more expensive than the alternative you know the, the, the more environmentally friendly alternatives, they still want to go for coal because it's become cultural. It's woke that the Democrats like it, so it's woke. But I would go even a step further and say that. Many conservatives feel that they are, you know, I, I was created in God's image. And so the I'm the top of the food chain. The earth is my oyster. I can do whatever I want with it. If I want to, you know, fill up my Cadillac Escalade, you know, 10, 10 miles per gallon. And that's that's my right to do. And it doesn't matter what the consequences are. And if I want to go out and kill animals for fun, not for food, but for fun. And I think I would think it's safe to say that about 90 percent of of hunters are Republican. That's fine, too. Uh, So I don't think I think it's basically comes down to selfishness. They don't care about and and, and the same thing about with guns. I mean, it you know, I mean, oh, yes, the, the school shootings are terrible, but it's the price we have to pay for me to be able to have my gun. Yeah. So let me just, we're just pretty much out of time here. I will say that there is, this is sort of biblically part of the so-called dominion narrative, you know, the idea of having dominion over the earth. And and that's in there. And I don't know, I worked for 16 years or whatever it was at a station where at all times my show either preceded immediately or followed immediately Rush Limbaugh's show. So I got a pretty good earful of what he had to say about uh, climate and climate change. And he basically said it wasn't a real problem uh, and that, yes, it was meant to uh, meddle and interfere with people's enjoyment of their lives, uh, trying to get them to kind of read in their behaviors and change things and stuff like that. And and I think that is a little bit of an element of being a conservative is that you don't want to be meddled with. You, whatever you do, you want to do volitionally. I don't know. It's a complicated topic and we're out of time anyway. Thanks very much for listening and for calling. Thank you.